Welcome to another episode of the Racing Your Podcast. I'm your host, Trent Barr. And on the phone with me is a gentleman that I I really look up to uh, in, in the Sacramento area, sort of uh, in terms of news broad- broadcasting and actually uh, live coverage of news that's happening you know, on a daily commute or as it's happening, you know, when something is going on in the world. His name is Dan Shively, and he was a pioneer in the art of, how should I say, uh, helicopter news journalism. Is that a right way to say, Dan? Yeah, I was there in the early days. I certainly wasn't the first, but uh, in terms of what news helicopters are today, uh, yeah, I was there pretty early. We we got our helicopter in 1979. Oh, wow. And I think we were the first in Northern California. We weren't the first to have a helicopter. Right. I think there was uh, one or two stations in uh, uh, San Francisco that had them, but we brought it to a higher degree, and we actually were the first station to actually own its own helicopter and not rent one, as most of the other stations were doing at the time. Oh, wow. It, I guess. That is yeah. so cool. Well, you said, it was, sorry, uh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, I was going to say it was a learning curve because nobody was really doing it. In fact, uh, the owner of the station at the time, John Kelly, mm. uh, Kelly Broadcasting, before it sold out to Hearst Argyle, yes. um, he was the kind of guy that liked to jump on new technology. We had, uh, we didn't have the first satellite truck in the market, but oh. I think we had the best. And we did have the first live unit. Uh, in the market way back when, but he was at a uh, broadcasting convention and one of the companies had a helicopter there that was outfitted with a microwave transmitter that would allow live broadcasting from the helicopter. Oh, wow. And uh, literally it was a prototype. It was serial number one oh. and he bought it right on the spot. Oh, wow. And then ordered, and then ordered a helicopter. So this was a you know, because a lot of stations didn't own helicopters at the time, uh, this device was actually meant to be portable, strapped in the back seat, oh, yeah. and then uh, hooked up externally to a microwave transmitting antenna. Wow. So uh, we actually, you know, bought it, and it was, as I say, serial number one, wow. and had it permanently mounted uh, in the helicopter. Wow, wow. Now, I remember seeing, I mean, I was a kid in the uh, the 70s and 80s living in Sacramento, and I, I loved watching the news, you know, watching the, the legendary figures that worked at KCRA, you know, Stan Atkinson, uh, Creighton Sanders, yourself, and like guys like Mike Boyd and Tom Duhane and stuff like that. Uh, but what what really uh, has an imprint in my memory is there's uh, there's sort of video footage of sort of a promo going into like a news uh, broadcast of live copter three with the guy on the side, the cameraman that was on the side of the, of the helicopter. I don't know. I don't know what that was. I don't know how he was sort of strapped into that helicopter to stay safe. I mean, that was just well, amazing. Were, and that was, that was certainly uh, something that we had to really think about is how do you get good pictures from the air oh, yeah. without being really shaky uh, if you had a wide shot, it wasn't bad, but as soon as you started to zoom in, uh, it got pretty shaky. Oh, yeah. And so there weren't a lot of devices around at the time to take care of that. So we actually um, bought a, it was a company called Cotton. There were two big companies in LA that did motion picture filming. Oh, wow. And one was Continental and the other was Tyler. Oh, wow. So you may have heard of a Tyler mount. This was a continental mount. Oh, wow. uh, it took up pretty much the whole back seat. Mm. The photographer sat in the seat hanging out the side oh, my God. and with the door off. And there was a long counterbalanced arm that came over his shoulder. And the camera kind of floated in front of him, uh, separating the helicopter vibrations uh, with gimbals and springs. So we got to be, uh, you know, we got some pretty good shots from the air. Not, not as good as they are now but at the right. time it was it was very good it wasn't really uh you know it, the thing is it was a motion picture unit and it wasn't uh the best for shooting spot news because you had to uh mount the camera onto it and if it was cold weather you the photographer was hanging outside oh. so uh it worked okay <laughs> right right 
Now, now, we, ye- sorry, go ahead. Oh, no. And then, you know, over the years, we uh, uh, went to actually a gyro stabilized lens. Oh, yeah. That was uh, a, a little bit better. It used up a lot of light and couldn't uh, be used at night very well. And of oh. course, uh, way into the 90s, we started uh, getting other equipment that was actually a whole gyroscopically supported camera system that hung outside the the nose of the helicopter and the operator just sat in the back with a little panel, which is what they're using now. Oh, yeah. And uh, those were great. I mean, you can read a a street sign from a thousand feet. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Wow. So it's changed a lot over the years. Well, yeah, I would have to say. And, and. I mean, you yourself, you had a, a radio background, but then how did you get into, you were the pilot of the helicopter, and how did you get into, how did the radio stuff sort of intermingle with the with the helicopter pilot stuff? You know, I think it was just the right time at the right place at the right time. Wow. Uh, I had gone to Sac State, and then I was in the Marine Corps. I didn't fly. I was in public affairs, actually, mm. uh, doing doing radio and TV. Wow. And uh, when I got out, uh, I used my GI Bill to learn to fly. Oh, that's and it cool. Was actually, literally just on a lark. I just wanted to learn to fly. Wow. And the GI Bill took care of... Uh, they didn't pay for your private license, but any advanced ratings that you got after your private... Uh, GI Bill would take care of, or at least a large portion of it. So I went ahead and uh, got my. Let's see, what, I was work. Actually, I was working at Channel Ten behind the scenes. Really, as a production assistant at the time, I learned to fly. Wow! And uh, I went ahead and got my commercial license and instrument rating and um, twin engine rating. Oh wow! And <clears throat> then uh, while I was working at Channel uh, Ten. I got a job. Excuse me. I got a job up in uh, Chico, at oh. Channel Twelve up there as okay. a re- reporter and anchor. Wow! And that was the, the really early days. And ironically, uh, the station had a trade out with a flight service, but they never could use it because they didn't have anyone to to fly. Oh wow! So that was a, a a double benefit for me and for them. And so we covered a very large area up in Chico, all of, you know, Northern California, the North Valley. Yeah. So we were able to uh, fly to stories. We couldn't do anything live from them, but uh, it was good to actually just, you know, hop into an airplane and, and fly up to uh, Shasta County, for example. Okay. It saved a lot of time. Wow. And um, I left, I was only up there for a year, and then I... I uh, came down and got a job at uh, KCRA Radio back when there was such a thing. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We I didn't know that was KCRA. I didn't know that was on a radio. Wow. Oh, yeah. KCRA uh, had uh, KCRA AM, and uh, it used to be KCRA FM, and it changed to uh, KCTC. Oh, okay. So, KCTC, yeah. Yeah, so it was, uh, the AM was KCRA and the FM was KCTC. And uh, I was hired, actually, to produce the morning news. Wow. And literally two months after I started, the guy who was doing the traffic reports decided to leave, and he wanted to get into television in the Central Coast. So there I was, sitting there with a commercial pilot's license, and they owned their own traffic plane. Oh, wow. The the black uh, Cessna Cardinal. All right. So I was offered that job. They said, we'll try you out for two months. Yeah. Yeah. And I ended up doing that for seven years. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. To carry it just a little bit farther, uh, during that time, uh, I had just enough money on the GI Bill left to get a helicopter beating, knowing I would never use it. Wow. Uh, But I just wanted to, I thought it would be a lot of fun. Oh, that's cool. So I learned in an old Bell 47, which is the kind you would see on MASH. Okay. Korean War vintage, the big bubble top. Oh, yeah. And uh, so all of a sudden, Channel 3 very secretly decided to get a helicopter in 1979, and I I heard about it and went over and talked to the powers that be, and they said, well, we wanted a personality to go with it, but... Uh, and, and we thought of you, but the only problem is you, you know, you need a helicopter license. Oh. And so I told them, well, I have one. Oh. And again, right place at the right time. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, that so, is, uh, you know, and the rest is history. Skill, I'll take 
Yeah, given luck or skill, I'll take luck any day. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, luck plays a lot of rule. Uh, yeah, and, and it's all it's all in in something's plan. I would have to say. That's, well, hopefully. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, the rest is history on that. And and if I could ask that the plane that that was with KCTC was that the uh, the plane that KFBK would later use with Commander Bill? Not with Commander Bill. Uh, when I left. Let's see, how did that work? When I left, uh, a guy named Joe Miano replaced me. Oh, I remember that guy, yeah. And by that time, we had gotten out of... Hello? Yeah, go ahead. Hello? Oh, I, uh, my phone was doing funny things there, sorry. Oh, it's okay. Uh, by that time, we had gotten out of the cess... Oh, Dan, you still there? Yes, I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, when I left in 70... Uh, Nine, uh, Joe Miano took my place, and we were flying a Piper Archer at the time. Oh wow! And so uh, then, when Bill Evelyn, Commander Bill, started at uh, KFBK, he yeah. also had a black airplane, okay. a black Cessna Cardinal, yeah. like the one KCRA had. So right. a lot of people think uh, it was the same plane, but in fact, it wasn't. Wow! We, we, in my time there, in the seven years I was there, um, we started with one Cessna Cardinal went into another one, and then went into a Piper Archer. Okay. And then Joe ended up buying that plane, and when they decided at KCRA, or by that time KGNR, um, uh, he just went over to KFBK. So they at one time had two traffic planes, uh, uh, Bill in the uh, Black Cardinal and Joe in the uh, Piper Archer. Wow. So you so you were with KCRA from 1979 until it was 2012 when you retired. Uh, yeah, there was a break in there though. Uh, really, I, I, I was there from. Let's see, radio was 72 to 79, then 79 to 92. Oh, okay. And then I left for a few years and actually got out of TV for a short time and ended up doing some work over at. Uh, uh, Channel 10 and Channel 40. Okay. And then uh, moved back, or I moved up to Portland and worked for two years at the NBC affiliate up there. Okay. Uh, KGW. Right. And I returned to KCRA for another 10 years. Wow. Uh, in 2001, and I retired in 2011. Okay. Okay. So, so the 90s were kind of my dark, uh, <laughs> my, my non broadcasting or dark period. Oh, okay. Okay. You know, I wanted to ask you, I can't remember if I asked you this or not, but um, during the 1989 uh, Loma Prieta earthquake in San Francisco, mm-hmm. did did they sort of, did they did they have you guys go over there to sort of help out with the coverage, or did they have sort of everybody covered over there? Well, interestingly enough, there was a short time when I did not fly oh, really? uh, the helicopter. Um, I was anchoring, well, I, that was another weird thing, that I was probably the only person in the country that was a helicopter pilot reporter and also an anchor. Wow. Because almost for all of the 80s, I anchored the morning news. Oh, that's right. And so um, I was anchoring the morning news, and ironically, when I was uh, at 5 o'clock, when all that happened, I was sitting at a uh, desk at home, or actually at my uh, dining room table, and all of a sudden, I felt dizzy. Oh, really? It was like, it was the weirdest thing. I said, my gosh, what's happening? Right. And I looked up, and the chandelier was swaying, mm-hmm. and uh, the dogs were going crazy, and mm. we had a swimming pool at the time, and water was sloshing around. So yeah. I realized what was happening, so yeah. I grabbed the kids and stood in the doorway. And um, I got a call shortly thereafter um, to because we were going into continuing coverage. Right. And so, let's see, Stan, I guess it was Stan and Margaret at the time. Okay. Um, uh, they stayed on till midnight. Oh, wow. And I came on, and I stayed on from midnight till noon. Uh, oh, 12 hours my gosh. Wow. So I didn't do any of the immediate flying, uh, but uh, some uh, the next week I did a lot of the follow-up. Okay. You know, going down primarily to the Bay Area and to the Santa Cruz and watsonville area and covering that oh my gosh wow that was one of our bigger stories yeah yeah i would have to say it was yeah that and the harvey's bomb blast (laughs) when the uh the crew moved the bomb into harvey's resort oh in south lake tahoe 
Yes. Oh my gosh, I don't re- I don't remember that. What what year was that? Oh my god, when was that? You know, I I wish I could remember. It was early nineties. Oh, okay. And, okay. Uh, you know, it was an extortion, uh, uh, situ- uh, extortion plot. They and these guys just wheeled this big bomb like they were workmen. They wheeled it right through the front door up to the corporate offices, and it had a a whole series of switches on it. Oh my gosh! And they flicked the switches and said, "You don't pay us, um, you're going to blow the place up." Oh my gosh! So, and uh, when the FBI was trying to disarm it, uh, it, it did go off. Oh, <laughs> and so it did, did major damage to Harvey's resort. But that was another interesting thing too. This was before the days of satellite trucks oh really microwave is line of sight so everybody always jokes about people broadcasting from blue canyon back in those days oh yeah yeah if you if you went up interstate 80 blue canyon was the farthest you could get and still maintain a straight line with microwave transmission oh that is so so uncanny wow so we we uh literally jerry-rigged a situation that we could shoot from the ground and use the helicopter as a relay. Mm. And so I was up at uh, the ground level at Tahoe is about 6,000 feet. Right. So I'm flying around up at uh, about 12,000 feet and the signal was being relayed from the ground to the helicopter back to Sacramento. Oh my gosh. And uh, nobody could figure out how we were going live. Oh my gosh. So that, that was a uh, kind of a fun trip as well. That is that, that's a, that's an inventive sort of experience. Wow. That's cool. Yeah, I mean, in, I mean, today's, uh, you know, now they're using cell phones for live broadcasts. So oh, I know, things yeah. Changed, things have changed quite a bit. They sure have. They sure have. Now, one more question about the helicopter stuff. Um, as far as scheduling goes, like on a normal day, would you would you be up in the helicopter for sort of the morning commute and then sort of land for a period of time and then go back up for like the five o'clock news for the evening commute? Is that kind of how that worked? It, 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 well, it changed over the years and depending, you know, what time of the year it was, depending if we were in ratings or not. Oh. Um, a lot of times, you know, when we started out, we were up regularly for the morning and afternoon because it was a new deal. Yeah. And people weren't used to uh, seeing those shots. But after after a number of years, we weren't just flying around, uh, you know, boring holes in the sky. Um I think during the rating periods, we'd be up uh, more in the morning and then always in the afternoon for the uh, five o'clock or six o'clock. But uh, if anything happened between those hours, I was kind of on call. So I'd have to, uh, you know, be ready to go to to cover, um, you know, whatever was breaking. Wow. Uh, Toward the end, now this is after the local company was sold to uh, Hearst. Yeah. And uh, early 90s, they sold the helicopter and leased it back. Oh, really? So the helicopter wasn't owned, and I went on to this, um, oh, about the last, my gosh, seven years I was there, I had a weird split shift where I would come in at uh, 5.30 in the morning, and I'd be off around you know 8.30 or 9, and then I would come back in the afternoon for a few hours. Oh, wow. uh, Because uh, uh, before... It was just me and a photographer sitting at the airport, and a lot of times nothing happened. Right. And it was kind of a waste of resources. Wow. So, um, yeah, toward the end, it was uh, a little strange. I, you know, as somebody else once said, they had the world's longest lunch hour from like nine in the morning till, you know, three or four in the afternoon. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So, yeah. Not, 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 yeah, I'm, I'm not a big fan of split shifts, so I'm glad that I was getting older in time to retire. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, but we were, Usually ready to uh, to go at a moment's notice. We could probably be airborne if nobody, if if the photographer was not there, we could be you know, airborne in about a half hour. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. Now, was it at Executive Airport where you guys uh, landed and took off for the for the day? Yes, for the most part. Okay. Early early on, we actually were based at a little crop duster strip across the street. Oh and my gosh! That gave really? us a little bit more freedom. But uh, I think from about 1980 or 81 on, we've been an executive. Oh, okay. Okay. That's fascinating. I always, I always had to live fairly close to the airport. Oh, you did? Really? Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I lived in the you know, Land Park, Southland Park, Green oh. Haven area. Okay. Okay. 
Well, that's fascinating to me. I, I don't know why. <laughs> it's just so cool. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, you, it, go ahead. No, no, I was going to say it's it, it's changed a bit now. It's uh, you know, I they'll they'll let the pilot talk a little bit, but he's not really a you know pilot reporter and go out on stories and such. Right, right. Well, I just have to say that that back back in the glory years of KCRA, I mean, you guys were number one in 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 the news probably for the for the whole country. I would think. I mean, you guys really you guys really set the tone for how to cover news. Well, that was that was all because of uh, our owner John Kelly. Mm. Uh, he was very innovative, and he he thought news would be, uh, you know, where where people where we would get the viewers for the rest of the day. Yeah. And he wasn't afraid on a big story to just go wall to wall and knock out programming and commercials. Right. Uh, right. Like the flood, and so people would get the uh, would know that would be the place to tune in because they knew they were going to get you know, all the, the best coverage, we'd throw a lot of uh, resources at it. Right. You know, from, from later on, satellite, helicopter, and reporters. And uh, there was a, jo- a joke that I had heard that one of the sales managers at the uh, one of the other stations, uh, during some big story, probably one of the floods, oh. and uh, saying, oh my God, you know how many, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars they're losing in revenue? For, for ads, oh. and, and the joke was, yeah, but we're going to make that up, you know, double or triple in later years. Oh gosh, so. wow. <laughs> well, I remember those floods in 1986. Those that was a big deal. I mean, I was, gosh, I was 13 years old, I think, and I, I remember seeing that. Yeah. It was, I think, it was wall to wall coverage during, mm-hmm. during, and uh, you know, and and the aftermath of all that stuff. Sure, wow. and and to set one thing straight. I get asked this all the time. Right. In the uh, in the the floods of the early 90s, uh, the dog that was rescued off the rooftop up in the Marysville area. Oh, really? That, that was not me. Oh, okay. Okay. I think that was 90, maybe 96, 95. Okay. Uh, but, uh, yeah, there was a dog trapped on the roof, and uh, the helicopter pilot who took my place, Michael Kidd, oh. and a photographer, Ron Middlecoff, actually hovered down and rescued the dog. Oh my gosh. And, uh, wow. It, it, <laughs> it made worldwide headlines. Oh, it did. Oh, wow. I mean, I, I didn't know about that cause I was away at college down in Southern California. Well, it, it was really funny, it was not funny, but it was interesting. I happened to be driving by the airport when they landed. Oh, really? And, uh, I think at the time I was over at channel 40 doing some work Okay. and I stopped in and, uh, they didn't seem to be, you know, think it was a big deal, or at least, uh, Mike, Michael Kidd, the uh, pilot didn't. And I said, you know, Mike, this is a story. This is a, a big story where people have died. There's been hundreds of thousands of dollars in damage. Oh, yeah. And yet in six months, the only thing that's going to be remembered is you rescuing the dog off the, uh, rooftop. You oh my gosh. Wow. And boy, how prophetic that was. They were on Oprah. They were on lots of the Today Show. Really? You know, uh, had books written about them. Oh, my and, gosh. Uh, Ron, the, uh, and they were the, uh, let's see, uh, the, uh, the, the, honor, the honor man of local parades. I mean, it was just amazing, the, the stuff that came to those two. Wow. Because of it. Wow. Yeah, the whole story in itself. Wow. That's fascinating. And it was, it was, you know, very, you know, human interest and, you know, heart rending. Yeah. Yeah. Well, can we, can we change gears a bit and talk about, um, your cars? Um, I, sure. I, I, I finally got to meet you at a cars and coffee event. I think it was back in December of last year and uh-huh. it was really cool to meet you. And, um, you're, you're driving a Lotus. Well, a Caterham. Oh, I, which, I, I am so sorry because I was it was either going to be a Lotus or a Caterham, and I didn't I, I couldn't remember. Well, for those uh, for those listeners who don't know, the Lotus Seven was a very innovative, very low cost uh, sports car. Yeah, it was built by Lotus, and first of all, in '57, right, and it continued in various forms all the way through the early '70s. And when Lotus decided to discontinue the model. 
one of their dealers said, you know, there's a lot of interest in this car. People, I, th- I think people are still interested. And by that time, Lotus had gotten really heavily into racing yeah. and road cars. Yeah. And uh, so they made a deal and sold the rights to continue the car, but they couldn't call it a Lotus 7. They had to call it a Caterham 7. Oh, goodness. And Caterham was the name of the town where the dealership was located. Oh, really? So. I don't feel bad saying it's a Lotus 7 because it's the direct, uh, I guess, child yeah. of the original. And, and, of course, you know, back in those days, I think the most powerful one was a, maybe 120 horsepower. And uh, the company is still in business, and they're making almost supercars now yes. that, uh, you know, resemble uh, the original ones, but they're cranking out close to 300 horsepower. And oh, it's, man. It's, but yeah, the, anyway, but they're but they're only like five hundred kilograms or something like that, right? Uh, well, now don't get me started on metric. Oh, <laughs> my, my my car weighs eleven hundred pounds. Okay, okay, and it's got about a hundred and thirty five horsepower. Okay, but uh, over the years they've uh, they've changed somewhat. But if the reason I got mine was because it's probably the closest configuration I could get to uh, a nineteen. 70 Lotus 7. Oh, that's cool. As far that's as cool. power and weight and everything. Yeah. I mean, it's a very impractical car, but it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've seen, uh, I've seen you at the uh, cars and coffee. And incidentally, I wanted to share that, uh, that last night there was this top gear episode. I don't know if you've seen it or not, but it's where Jeremy James and Richard go to a circuit in Scotland. It's called the knock Hill circuit. And, they uh-huh. did it. They did a challenge where the Stig and, and the whole deal was to actually put together their own Caterham Seven uh, car. Oh, uh-huh. but then uh, at the other end of the country, uh, down in London, at a Caterham dealership, the Stig was to drive a brand new Caterham all the way from London to their location in Scotland, which uh-huh. was like four hundred and seventy miles or something like that. Uh-huh. So it took them, supposedly it took the guys with Top Gear, it took them like eight hours to put this uh, Caterham 7 together and actually drive across the start-finish line to win the challenge. But then in, in the end, I guess uh, the Stig was sort of arrested for speeding in Scotland, so it never came. Yeah. he never got to the circuit. Well, I don't know if I'd want those guys putting together a car as fast as they can. Exactly. I've, I've, seen, I've seen clips from that. Yeah, and uh, there's a little bit more uh, <laughs> to it than that. Yeah, but uh, I don't know if you saw another uh, Top Gear Grand Tour where they went across Madagascar. Oh yes, yes. And and one, and one of the cars was a highly highly modified Caterham. Oh yes, which, uh, actually made it uh, look like it was on wagon wheels. Yes, but, uh, it was. They're a fun car. And, and and I had owned uh, two Lotus Sevens previously. Okay. And uh, from the '60s, and that's why I got kind of uh, uh, into the whole Lotus thing. I just uh, appreciate the car history and and the technology and what they did. And, yeah. And uh, back in the, as you say, the glory days. Yeah. Well, even I mean, I've I've been to several uh, CSRG events at Sears Point um, in the last few years, and there's been a few Caterhams or Lotuses that. Uh, that have really sort of they're they're flying through these corners. I mean, the drivers are, are literally daredevils going through there, and it's just amazing to watch. And they're beating these huge sort of thundering uh, V eight muscle cars that are on the track with them, and they're beating them just because of the lightness and the nimbleness of the car. It's amazing. Exactly. You know, I don't I don't say my car is fast. I say it's quick. Mm-hmm. And uh, ironically. Um, Back in the day, one of their advertising slogans was the car that was too fast to race. Oh, gosh. Because they kept getting bumped up in their uh, categories because they kept winning everything. Right. And finally, they're they're racing against these you know big muscle cars. And on tracks with a long straightaway, they couldn't compete. But if it was a, a short, twisty track, you're right. They would just uh, come out ahead. Oh, my gosh. that That's, oh, that's amazing. Funny, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. And, uh. You know, the, I, I've, I had a couple of uh, Lotus single-seat race cars that I thought I was going to vintage race, but at the time, uh, it just didn't work out. Um, I autocrossed them. Oh, yes. In a parking lot. 
but the, but they were fun. They were Formula Fords. Yes. And, uh, I I think I had actually I had five of them. Really, my goodness! <laughs> All at, at the same time, time or at different times? No, no, God, at the the different times. Okay. Um, uh, but, uh, they were fun and, and they looked, you know, made you look like Jim Clark because they oh, were that, yeah. that type of, uh, shape, the cigar shape back in the sixties the there. Yeah. Well, I love going to, I mean, they just had a CSRG event at Sears point and they had a huge formula Ford group and they usually do. They oh, usually uh-huh. have really good for, uh, really good formula Ford groups, uh, coming out for that. And they also, they're probably going to have another big Formula Ford group um, at the end of the month, probably first of November at Thunder Hill, with the last oh, uh, with the last CSRG event of the year. But um, yeah, I, a lot of people I, got their sorry, yeah, a lot ahead. of people got their start in that class. Yeah, yeah. Well, I love Formula Ford for the uh, I, I love I just love the way the cars sound, and I love how qu- sort of tight and and quick those cars are through the corners and they don't have a lot of power but they're really really nimble and the guys they're just going wheel to wheel uh action on the track all the time it's great to watch yep yep they're, they're pretty closely matched and it's more of a, a driver's uh technique and and power yeah which is good well that's awesome that's awesome well um so you said you did. Uh, you said you did autocrossing uh, with with your Formula Fords. Was that out at Mather or out at Cal Expo or something like that? Uh, mostly at Cal Expo in those days. Okay. Uh, McClellan. There used to be a, a place out uh, right off Watt Avenue called Splinter City. Oh my gosh! How it got that name? Uh, but uh, that was a big venue, and then they moved over to Cal Expo. Yeah. And uh, I don't know where where or if they're doing them today but it was a it was always a lot of fun well, they didn't do it seriously i mean there were people there that had these cars prepared that were just incredibly fast. yes yes well i i have distinct memories of going because my dad did autocrossing i mean he did it oh. with his friend his name his name was jerry and and he was they were both into porsches and so uh jerry uh-huh. his friend jerry was sort of a champion in the autocross sort of deal and um we went out to the that Splinters Field you said at McClellan across the street from McClellan oh. off of, off a of Watt next to the uh, next to the dump over there, and then um, we right. went and and yeah there was the dump over there, and then the Cal Expo venue I thought was cool because it had sort of the back stretch or the back road that they used and and uh, uh-huh. they would sort of they would make like the chicane in the back and. I remember as a kid, my 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 dad had a Porsche 911 SC, and he let his friend Jerry drive it, and they were both in the car together, and they were on that sort of back stretch approaching that chicane, and he completely lost control, and the car spun out in the in the dirt, and I thought the car flipped over, but uh, it was pretty crazy. But I was only like, oh gosh, how old was I? I could have been like eight years old or something like that. Oh, did you ever get to ride around with him? Um, no, they, I think you had to be a certain age and of a certain weight to be able to do that, to be, you know, in compliance with the safety regulations. And I didn't have a helmet to fit my head, you know, and, oh, <laughs> yeah, if I yeah, did, the, I probably uh, could have. Well, that's, what's kind of fun about autocross because you saw a lot of, you know, hybrids that were not street legal or a lot of old race cars that were converted for that. Yes. For the, for the short tracks. Yeah. I even saw a, uh, there was a guy back in those days that had a, a Lotus 70, which was a formula 5,000 car. Oh my gosh. And had, had wings on it and a big V8 engine, Ooh. but it was modified for short course. And boy, he just tore up the place. Oh man. Ooh. Especially the, uh, the unlimited models. Oh my gosh! Yeah, it was, was a lot of fun. That was cool. But the uh, yeah, the Formula Fords are, was an interesting class because it started by a couple of racing schools in England. They were using kind of uh, Formula Three cars, I believe, or Formula Juniors. Oh yeah, which had uh, about a one liter race engine. But wow. The problem was you had they had to tune them a lot, and they were being wrecked, and it got to be expensive. So mm-hmm. um, Lotus had a Formula 3 car it was called a Lotus 31. Okay. And a tube frame, fiberglass body. 
And one of the schools said, well, you know, if we put a little higher engine, but stock engine in it, uh, we could get the same results and it would be a lot cheaper to run. So oh. they, they took the one liter race engine out and put a 1500 CC English Ford engine in Cortina. Oh, okay. And they said, these worked out pretty well. And then, um, uh, that was motor racing stables at Brands Hatch. And then, um, another school, the Jim Russell school, yeah. uh, couldn't make a deal with Lotus. So he, uh, uh, went to another race car company called Alexis. Oh. And so he had those and then eventually went over when Lotus uh, started uh, developing and producing the 51s, both the schools started using those. Oh my and gosh. Uh, if you look at a Lotus 51 Formula Ford and take it all apart, you look at the chassis and it's essentially a Lotus 2022 uh, Formula Junior and a Lotus 31 Formula 3 car. They're all kind of the same, just different engines and such, and a little bit different body work. Interesting. So wow. Colin Chapman liked to really um, you get the most out of his designs. Yeah. And and then ironically, a very well-sorted, well-known uh, sports racer was the Lotus 23. Oh, yes. And, and if you took any one of those chassis that I just mentioned and split it lengthwise down the middle and widened it, that was the Lotus 23. Oh my gosh. But with the, but with the bigger engines in it. Wow. So as I say, it, it was a, a very good design right from the beginning. Wow. And, and just as a side note, um, Jim Russell was tasked with making the replica cars for the movie Grand Prix. Oh, really? Uh, James Frankenheimer. Now they used, you know, real Formula One cars in that, but he also, built uh, replica dummies of the cars on a Lotus 31 chassis, and they only had the little 1,500 uh, CC Ford engines in them. Wow. But, and I, I think that's probably why uh, one of the Academy Awards, the movie one, was for sound editing. Oh, yes. <laughs> you see them racing around, you would think they were Formula One cars. Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember, I mean, that movie was sort of pivotal in the... Uh the sound editing world. I love the sound. I love the sound of that stuff. Sure. <coughs> and, wow. and a lot of other techniques too, that were developed because they didn't want to use rear screen. They didn't want to, uh, they wanted to get out there and have the actors driving these cars. <laughs> right. And, uh, except for one, they were. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, it, 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 I, it was a pivotal movie for me too. I, I, can't tell you how many times I've seen it. Now, did you do you have you seen the Steve McQueen Lamar movie? Oh yeah, and and that's another that's another great racing movie. But yeah. uh, the backstory I don't know if you've seen any of the if you ever get if you or any of your listeners ever get a chance to see behind the scenes the making of Lamar. Oh my gosh! Uh, there, yeah, I've seen I've seen that. A, yeah, yeah, that's more of a. Uh, 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 of a great story than the actual movie. It's amazing the thing even got uh, made. It it was so many problems. So many, it. yeah. There was a lot of issues with it. Oh my gosh, the the they didn't even really have a script to begin with. You're right. You're right. I mean, <laughs> my dad and I bonded over that um, when he was alive back uh, like in the '90s. I would come home from college or something like that, and and I'd put Lamont in, and he would come in and watch with me, and we and he'd be like, "All right, watch this point right now." He's going to have the accident at Indianapolis and the, he's going to go through the, uh, the billboard and be, yeah. be taken to the helicopter. And then, and then Stoller gets back to the pits, you know, right away or something like that. That's not, that couldn't possibly happen. You know, he was telling me all that stuff. Yeah. But it, it was, it was a good movie. Yeah, it really and, was and, and much different where, whereas, uh, you know, they're both great. I think, uh, Grand Prix is more of a, a little bit more of a soap opera, but, yeah. uh, the, the racing scenes hold up today. I mean, they were just so well done. Well, I got to say that James Garner in that movie Grand Prix, I mean, he was such, such the perfect role for that. And he was the, the, the quintessential American race car driver in Europe. And it was just, he just, he just, he was just such an amazing, uh, amazing presence in that movie. I think. Well, he was. And, uh, you know, that, uh, I don't even want to tell you how much memorabilia I have from that movie. Oh, that goodness. I've collected over the years. 
it, it's all sitting in a box in a storage locker, but uh, oh. I've got tons of pictures and you know behind the scenes stuff on it. And I, one of these days, I'll figure out what to do with it all. Oh my but, gosh! You know uh, what, what's interesting is the drivers in the movie, the main drivers today would be way too old. They wouldn't be racing. Oh, I know. Yeah. You know, you look yeah. at today's F1 drivers, and they're all you know early twenties to. You know, early 30s. Yeah. And uh, I mean, Yves Montan at that time was probably in his 50s. Uh, right. Right. <laughs> but, you know, that's the way it was back then. They were older drivers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember, I remember seeing, there's like a clip, there's like a clip of that movie where you see, it, there's like Graham Hill in the background and mm-hmm. uh, it was like a, a sort of, uh, I don't know if they were in a bar or something like that, having a cigarette and a, and a shot of whiskey or something. But you had actual, and and I think was was um, was Sterling Moss in that as well, and guys like that. Oh my you know, gosh! I, I don't I don't remember ever seeing him or Jim Clark. Surprisingly, oh really? Yeah. Um, but they had all the, you know, most of the other uh, Formula One drivers of the time were in the movie, and some had speaking roles. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> and so that's kind of fun, fun to see as well. Yeah, it uh, really these, is. These, these legends that. Uh, but they're doing their thing. Wow. Now there's, there's so many, uh, you know, great parts of that movie and some of them were a little silly, but, uh, right. You know, that's just the way they, they do it. Now, did uh, you by I chance, remember. sorry, go ahead. I interrupted ahead. you. So oh, it, no. did go you ahead. by chance get to travel to Europe or something like that to see any sort of racing by chance? Yeah. I'm very, uh, travel. Uh, <laughs> let's see. <laughs> Uh, I'm not a big traveler. Oh, really? Okay. In fact, the, the only part of Eng- Europe I've ever been to is England. Okay. <laughs> and uh, didn't see any of the racetracks. Okay. Okay. Because I'd go over, I thought I was going to see all these classic English cars driving around, which you really don't. Right. Or I never made it to any of the tracks over there either. But uh, at the time, I was traveling with my uh, 10-week-old son. Oh, wow. So <laughs> we, we were limited to what we could do. Oh, wow. But you know, someday maybe. Yeah, that, that'd be. There's always a chance. Fun to, always that'd be fun to sit at the uh, the hairpin of Monaco. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Well, you know they I have the they have this thing now where they have the historic races in Monaco, and I think it might be. Oh, bless you, Dan. Yeah, it, thank you. It might be. Uh, it, it, I think it's like the historic races of Monaco. It may be a month or two months before the actual Monaco Grand Prix. And it's all these historic uh, Formula One cars descend on Monaco and have their races. Just amazing. Well, a- another interesting thing about, if you remember in Grand Prix, the Monaco race is the first race uh, of the season. Oh, at that yeah. Time, or the first point you see. Yeah. Can you imagine this today? They actually had a GT40 camera car oh. at the end of the pack. Oh my gosh. At the start of the race. Wow. And it ran one lap during the real race. Wow. Yeah. And Unbelievable. Off and, and the rest was, uh, you know, recreated before and after. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh. There, there's so much great trivia. I mean, I'm, I'm a really big movie buff. I love movies. And oh, I love, really? I am. I, I love being, uh, I'm, I guess I like the making of them almost more than the movies, the story behind them. And uh, you, you get any big blockbuster and there's always some uh, good stories. So what kind of movie comes to mind when you're, when you're saying you're, you're really into movies? Cause I mean, are, is it a car movie? Is it something, some, some yeah, other kind be, of movie? You know, car movies, you know, technical, you know, pre CGI. Oh, totally. Or, Totally. Where, you know, when the special effects are really special effects. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, and again, going back to Grand Prix, because that's one of my favorite of all time movies. Yeah. Is the, the, uh, they developed a cannon that was, uh, used compressed gas, nitrogen, to fire the cars for the crash scene. Oh my God, yes. So at, at, at the, at the end when Jean Pierre, flies off the track and is killed oh, yeah. or at the very beginning at Monaco where, uh, Scott Stoddard, you know, goes up the side of the wall. Yeah. Uh, it was actually a Lotus 31 that was mounted on his cannon and, and shot up the wall. Oh, goodness <laughs> gracious. But, uh, you know, just the cameras that they developed and the, the, the different techniques and, you know, now CG is, you can do 
you know, anything can be done. But back in those days, the older movies, when you really had to plan these things out and uh, and edit it correctly, you make a great movie. You know, but, you know, I love modern movies too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm a fan. You remember Bullet? Did you see Bullet? Oh gosh. Now, okay, you're talking to a Bullet nerd here. Oh I've goodness. Driven. I've actually driven the course. Really? Yes. Went down. Look for it, and of course, it's not at all like it is in the movie. Okay, yeah, uh, it it jumps around from you know pretty much you know the Russian Hill area of downtown to yeah. uh, South San Francisco to even farther South San Francisco. Yeah, and I always joke that at the the climactic scene where you know the the two cars are racing down the hill and they're crashing into each other, yeah. and then finally the black charger crashes into the gas station. Yeah, yeah. If if you go to the top of that's Guadalupe Canyon Parkway, really, and if you go up to Market Street where it starts and drive that whole route down to the bottom, you know it takes probably less than a minute. Oh my gosh! But and if if you know the area, you can see sometimes they're going down the hill and sometimes they're going up the hill. Yeah. But if you don't know the area, the editing is great. Yeah. And and my favorite trivia part of that is that they're supposed to crash into the gas station. They missed the gas station. Oh yeah, because the uh, the black charger was actually attached to the Mustang. Oh, uh, and then they were roaring down the the hill together, and then the Mustang released the black charger and then went off one way, and it was supposed to go straight into the fake gas station, but it missed. Oh, and if you look gosh. very carefully, you, you can see it. You're going past the gas station. Oh my gosh! Oh my so, gosh! So you know, it, it's it's fun things like that. But but that chase scene, you know, it's one of the ones that just uh, you know set the benchmark. Well, you know, there was that, it was so funny because the music in that movie was was made by Lalo Schifrin, and there's a CD out. I don't know if uh-huh. you I don't know if you'd be interested. I could burn you a copy next time you see it. Next time I see you, but um. Lalo Schifrin, there's an actual soundtrack to the movie Bullet that I think came out back in the early 2000s or something. And yeah, no, it's a great soundtrack. <clears throat> and that's one of the, the good things. The, it's a good soundtrack, and then they, they know when to not have any music. Yes, exactly. That's the whole thing, too. And Yeah. Um, so there's yeah, the... Go ahead. There are, there are several websites just dedicated to the chase scene. Oh, really? And, and they're really fun because... You actually see the the same scene. Well, when they're coming down Chestnut Street, three times, oh, but from different yeah. angles. Yeah, 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 and yeah. Three different shots with the Volkswagen bug sort of going really slow, yeah, and yeah, the old green Volkswagen. Yeah, no, yeah. it's the it, it, but you know, it, the the whole movie. I mean, the, the chase scene is great. Obviously, the whole movie is pretty interesting too. Yeah, um, I think it was based on a book called the story called the. Silent Witness. Really? I think that was the name of it. Interesting. And, they, and, you know, of course, Jacqueline Visit is always good to look at, too. Yeah, she is. She's very and, nice. And, of course, Steve. Steve was so cool, man. So cool. He was. He was just like, oh, I met his, I met his, I mean, I, I didn't meet his son, Chad. I mean, I've seen Chad from a distance. Like, I was at Laguna Seca uh-huh. once, and I had him in my camera lens, and I and he was giving me, like, a... It was like a side portrait kind of shot, and I'm like, "Oh my god, that uh-huh. head—that's the Steve McQueen head right there." <laughs> oh, he looks yeah, just like his dad. Yeah, yeah, but uh, you know, there's just and uh, <clears throat> the you know the the driver of the uh, black charger. Yes, there's a guy named Bill Hickman. Bill Hickman, and yes. He was, Bill Hickman. He was considered one of the best stunt drivers in. Uh, Hollywood at the time, right. and and he was also an actor. If you uh, ever saw the movie Patton about George Patton, I think so. He played uh, Patton's driver and aide. Oh my gosh! And he was also the driver, the bad guy driver in the Seven Ups, which was another big uh, had another good chase scene in New York. Really? And uh, and then the final interesting thing about him was he and James Dean were good friends. Oh really? And he was. Uh, driving when let's see they he and Dean's mechanic the three of them were driving up to uh, Monterey to Laguna Seca yeah and they had uh, an old Ford station wagon and they were towing 
James Dean's Porsche. Yeah. And uh, at some point during the trip, they stopped for gas, and he unloaded the Porsche. And uh, he and the mechanic went ahead of Bill, who was in the Ford station wagon towing the trailer. Right. And Hickman was the first person to get on the scene after he crashed. Oh, I didn't uh, know that. Yeah, so, yeah, he was an interesting guy in his own right. Wow. Um, wow. See, way too much trivial information that nobody cares about. No, no, this is really cool. I mean, I love, I, you know, I love all the stuff. I mean, I, I love like historic sort of Sacramento TV and radio stuff. And then we're getting into movies and, and it's just so cool. I just love this stuff. <laughs> yeah, well, when you get old, I mean, I'm 75 now. Oh, my God. Congratulations. I just got to say. Well, yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, you know, just uh, you look back on things and, you know, people will come up and remind me of something that I've forgotten all about. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, well, I'm sure. Well, Dan, I really no, I appreciate the. the uh, go ahead. And if you know, we're, we're close enough to, you know, Monterey that uh, if you ever have a chance to go down to Car Week and oh. orgy of car stuff. I've been there. I've been there for Car Week, and uh, I it's it's an amazing experience. I mean, I have a few videos on my YouTube channel where, you know, I've been to the Rensport reunion. I've been to the to Car oh, Week, and and the thing that blew me away the most, I think, was the exotic Car Week at at Can at Cannery Row. It could have been like Thursday oh. or Friday night. Uh-huh. Yep. And those, <laughs> excuse me. <laughs> those uh seeing those cars was just unbelievable i mean cars that you see on the youtube all the time and but then there's that then there's that sort of sect of the car enthusiast and then you have the stuff that that you might be educated on if you watch an episode of top gear like a, a lotus or a caterham or something like that it's just amazing mm -hmm. you get to see that stuff and i i miss seeing all that stuff on a regular basis, just cars driving yeah. down the road. It's like, oh my gosh, I saw like a an older yeah, I mean, Toyota Celica. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's a lot of fun. It's getting it's almost getting too big, too yeah. crowded, but uh, yeah, uh, it's still fun. Well, it's a shout out to. I mean, we love going to Cars and Coffee. It's a shout out to the Cars and Coffee Folsom Group and also the Carmichael Group. You know, thank you, thank you for yeah. having those events, and I I love seeing older cars. I love seeing the people that drive them, and it's just great. Well, it's you know, it's uh, God. I probably spend way too much time there, but I you know, pretty much every week I'm at either well, probably both of them, the Cars and Coffee Folsom and the one in uh, Carmichael, and they're a little bit different. Folsom has some newer cars, uh, but they both have older. Classic hot rods, and literally, and I'm not exaggerating. Every week, you see something new that you've never seen before. Yeah, and yeah. and you meet these people who are, you know, amazing. Uh, you know, I, I consider myself old, but there are a lot of older hot rodders there. Well, yeah, that have these great cars. Well, they just, I mean, they just, I mean, I wasn't able to go, but they had this Serrano concourse um, back last weekend, and Phil Cowan mm -hmm. was the MC, and he was talking about it on his radio show the next day, how great it was just, just to see these older cars, you know, just, just out in the open, you know, people driving them. They're not in a museum. They're just being, they're being out there and they're being enjoyed. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. We've got a couple of uh, really good shows. Uh, Ironstone winery up in Murphy's has yes. a great car show every year. Yes. And uh, that just was completed. And Serrano, of course. Um, yeah. And then the Pebble Beach happens in August, and and it's like, oh my sure. gosh, you ever you ever been to that concourse in at Pebble Beach? No, I surprisingly never have. Oh wow, um, it, it's getting ridiculously expensive these days. Yeah, like kind four of or is five hundred dollars a ticket. Oh goodness gracious! And up until this year, uh, most but not all uh, of the Pebble Beach cars would go on a tour. Oh, really? A few days before. And they would drive down Highway 1 to Big Sur and come back. And then they would park on Ocean Avenue in Carmel for lunch. Oh, yeah. And and you could just wander through and see all the, the, the cars there. Yeah. And they didn't do that this year. So we had to, we actually parked down Highway 1 and just watched them drive by. Oh, that's cool. Which is, uh, 
still it's still cool to see them uh, on the road like that. Wow. Wow. Cars you would never see. Yeah. But there's you know, down there there's something for everyone. Yeah, there really is. I mean my partner Rick Noop is uh his dad was involved with the uh, opening of Laguna Seca and he he um he made a documentary uh about when they used to have races down in Monterey down in the forest it's called Racing Through the Forest. Yeah. Yep. And it was it was an amazing um I mean that was before that was before, I mean obviously before um the concourse came and all this other stuff happened but it, he was really involved in that and him and I talk oh, on that, a regular basis about this stuff. Well, those are great stories, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. Back in those days, and you know, they weren't all exotic cars. You know, you got you know home built raced at Pebble Beach. Yeah, yeah. But uh, you know, there's so many car shows going on around here. Uh, different clubs will have them at different uh, venues. I mean, Cars and Coffee, Folsom and Carmichael are every week, and then once a month is Euro Sunday. Yes, and that moves around from. Uh, different and and you see a lot of the newer more exotic cars at, yeah at that yeah but uh if you just go if you're a car nut and uh sacramento's got a lot going on mm. that is so for sure well dan i really appreciate the time that we've had today to be able to chat about stuff i'm 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 so thrilled to know you and uh thank you so much for coming on well thank you for having me and i hope i didn't ramble on too much no oh, man i I love listening to your. I love I love your voice. I mean, how do you get into? You're still doing voiceovers, right? Well, I, I you know I've kind of uh, uh, I've kind of retired from that now. I, oh, really? I did for a while. I was doing I was doing a few commercials and and I it, the funny thing is I was doing them for other parts of the country oh, and I've never seen them. Oh wow! And so periodically. Uh, I got a call from um, Barry Brown, who used to be a weatherman at Channel 3, and he lives back in North Carolina. And he wow. said, God, I saw you doing an insurance company commercial. <laughs> and so, I really, <laughs> that's so you never know where you're going to pop up. Well, I, I think I saw one of you, I think I was on YouTube or something, and I saw you do either either like a, a, an infomercial for insurance or health care or something like that. Oh, it was, uh, yeah, that was the, uh, the state, what was it, uh, in home uh, health care. Yeah, yeah. I just uh, thought that was cool. State sponsored. Yeah, that was that was a nice uh, little gig. That was that was fun. Did that a few years ago, and and uh, I think locally I'm on a law firm commercial that pops up every once in a while. Although I did it about three years ago. Okay. <laughs> Dragged me out. <laughs> oh well, that's cool. I just lo- I love seeing yeah, I, I love seeing that stuff. Fun. I mean. When I was a kid, I worked at Rayleigh's in Carmichael, and Stan Atkinson would come in, and I'd sometimes bag his groceries, and he wouldn't let me take his groceries out with him to the car. He'd be like, no, I'll take it out myself. <laughs> but he, you know, I, I just like, you know, see, seeing, seeing folks that are that are in that sort of realm, it's really cool. So anyway, thank you so much for the time. I appreciate it. Well, you're very welcome. And again, thank you for having me. Enjoyed it. Well, you're welcome. Um, anyway, thank you folks for listening to the Racing Air podcast. My guest, Dan Shively, has been so gracious to come on. Thank you again, Dan. appreciate it. Not a problem. Anytime. All right. We'll see you. We'll see you this weekend at the Cars and Coffee. How about that? Sounds good. All right, man. Well, take care, folks. Anyway, thank you for listening to the Racing Your Podcast. I'm your host, Trent Barr. Thank you, Dan Shively, for being so gracious to come on. Good night, folks. Good night.